All right, we're back here at the Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich and Harmon Dial. Harm, let's talk about Chikrin. So he goes for a 2023 first, which is top five protected, Washington's 2024 second, and a 2026 second down the road. And there was a lot at play here. There's a ton of context that's clearly important that was dictating this price, right? It came out afterwards. Elliot Freeman reported that the Coyotes essentially had no interest in taking any dollars back, even if it was expiring for this deal, like to facilitate it. They needed to do uh, a deal like this where they just take on futures that they don't have to pay for now and just get off of Jacob Chicken's contract, which in and of itself is such a sad way to think about this thing because you're talking about a 25-year-old defender who's in his prime, who's really good, who's making half of what he probably should be on the open market. And you're viewing it as like, this is this is a bit too pricey for us. I think we need to cut some costs here. Like, let's save the Coyotes conversation for a, for like a bit down the road here because it's another whole separate issue. But from the Senator's perspective, I get the risk of, all right, if they miss the playoffs again, this is two straight years where they trade a first for Alex DeBrincat. They trade a first for Jacob Chikrin. They're running out of runway with uh, cheap ELC years, similar to what we were talking about with the Canucks, where Jake Sanderson has one more. They've already paid Josh Norris. They've already paid Brady Kachuk. They've already paid Tim Stutzla. They've paid Thomas Shabbat, right? They've already not boxed themselves in, but like they're paying for a lot of these young players and they don't have the team success yet that's that to show for it, right? And so you're wondering whether it's from a timing perspective, the right timeline, whether it makes sense. I guess I don't want to be speaking out of both sides of my mouth here because the Senators aren't necessarily that far ahead of the Canucks in terms of their place in the league hierarchy. But I do like that they went and at least got a cost-controlled 25-year-old def- right, uh, defenseman, Jacob Chikrin, <laughs> even though they're not in that dissimilar position. I know that they're much closer to the playoffs this year. Yeah. Right? Um, there is risk involved, but I just maybe maybe what's clouding my judgment is the fact that I, I, just, I feel like I'm on the extreme end of my Jacob Chikrin evaluation. Like, I think he is very, very good, and the conversation around him has not done justice what a player he is. Yeah, I think there are also a couple of differences in comparing the Senators and the Canucks. Number one is Senators at this point, they don't have Pedersen or Hughes level, like a one-two there in terms of um, stars, but the core is so much deeper at this point in terms of who's already arrived. I mean, at this point now with Chicken in the fold, uh, well, even even starting with the forward group, right? Like that's a you know they've got a really solid top six when you go down the list of DeBrinket, Brady Kachuk, uh, Josh Norris, who by the way, like centers have been in the playoff con- contention with him missing a ton of time, yes, yeah. right? Wh- where which you know not not a lot of you know if other teams were in that sort of spot, they'd also especially in the East, a lot of other teams would potentially be in trouble, and then you have Stutzla. Uh, Batherson, Giroux still, like that's you that's a much deeper sort of forward group, especially when you combine it with now you have one of the best left sides in the NHL with Shabbat, Sanderson on, on his ELC, Chikrin, like that's an embarrassment of riches on the left side. I also really like Artem Zub. You probably need another right shot guy to sort of supplement, you know, who's at least competent, who's at least an upgrade on Travis Hamanick. Yeah. But I think you've got a lot of building blocks there already. And then the second consideration, which I think is really important, is you're not tied down to to any anchor contracts. Yeah. Right? Like, Hamannick's expiring this year. There aren't... Like, you don't go on their cap-friendly page and go, oh, my God, yeah, how are you going to contend around Zab, this right? Oliver Ekman-Larsen contract? Yeah. Or, 
or JT Miller is soon to be an anchor himself, or there there are all these four to six million dollar contracts which you're trying to reallocate. Like they're the Senators' books are so much cleaner, and they have a better prospect pipeline too. Well, and they also have more locked up or built in runway now organizationally because I, I think I don't know how much stock you want to put into this, but I do I do wonder. From a Canucks perspective, there is at least some fear of like we don't want to be so bad to alienate Elias Pettersson before he gets signed to his next deal, right? He has what one more year after this one, and then he's still an RFA, but he's going to be in for a big payday based on the way he's played this year in particular. For a lot of these centers, guys, you're mentioning, they've already signed them for what six, seven, eight yeah. years down the road. So not necessarily that like you're there's no like gun to your head or anything, right? It's like it gives you a bit more runway to to make these decisions there's also the fact that they're up for sale and i imagine they're also trying to improve um the perception around their organization in terms of making them a more intriguing asset for someone to step in and buy right and so i i i I've, here's the thing you mentioned the x's and o's in terms of the blue line right i'm very curious to see what they do with chikrin and what they do with the other defensemen they have because in the opener against the rangers they use chikrin basically on the third pair left side they played him when they called in mostly, right? I want to see them experiment with either moving Jake Sanderson or him to the right side. I think it's actually more likely that Jake Sanderson does it because Chickren played with Shane Gossesbear this year. Both guys were left shots, and Gossesbear played on the right side, which I think is a bit telling to me. If they do that, though, I actually think a guy like Sanderson is a perfect defense partner stylistically for Chickren because Chickren's been miscast as this like offensive dynamo, and that's really not what he's all at at all. He's like a very physical, play-killing defenseman who's a good rush defender, who can shoot well, but he's not going to be uh, a four-check, four-check killer himself, right? Like, he's not going to take the puck People were talking about, it, talking about him as if he's this power play specialist it was so defensive liability. Yeah, no one... no. Well, yeah, I mean, they were telling on themselves no one's actually watched Jacob Chicken play this year. Um, but if he plays with a guy like Sanderson, Sanderson's just, just like such a smooth, beautiful skater, right? Like, he can take the puck up ice himself. And he's also a good rush defender already, has established himself. But I love the idea of that pair because all of a sudden, then if you keep Shabbat and Zoop together, maybe you can tone down Shabbat's usage a little bit. Yeah. All of a sudden, he's not leading the league in ice time, five-on-five usage, all that. Maybe he becomes a bit more efficient with a more manageable workload. And all of a sudden, if that's the case, that top four, you're cooking. And then you get to bump down Travis Hamanick to a third pair for now. Hamanick and Holden, I believe, are both off the books after this season. That creates yeah. a bit more flexibility to go out and add more uh, suitable third-pair defensemen for what you're, the way you're trying to play, and all of a sudden you're cooking with gas. So I think it presents a lot of interesting moving parts for them to make a ton of sense. I think it was a worthwhile gamble. There is some risk involved, especially, you know, he goes down with injury and there was a certain scare uh, against the Rangers last night, and it's like, oh, my God, here we go again. He's missed 107 games in his first six years in the NHL. Like, I think that is a bit of an issue. But he's a 25-year-old who is, like, renowned for his physical fitness. I think... That's the type of player that I would bet on having better injury health moving forward. Um, so I don't know. I like the I like the player. I like the fit. I'm very curious to see whether it can actually finally be leveraged into some actual team success. Even if it doesn't work out, where you look at a player moving to the right side, and, and for whatever reason, let's say it's just not a smooth transition, and you got to keep all those guys on the left side. Tampa's shown that you can have three excellent left shot defenseman and sort of deploy your D pairs in a where all three of them despite sort of 
being on paper on different pairs are still playing a ton, right? When Tampa had Sergachev, Hedman, McDonough, and the right side was like, they had Chernak, and then it was like replaceable parts, right? Like the Jan Rudas and Zach Bogosians of the world and just cycling those guys in and out, and we've seen them continue to cycle guys in and out. So Ottawa's in a spot where at least they have the one dependable right shot in Zub. So even in a worst-case scenario, even if they can only find a guy who's competent, who is maybe like a in an ideal world, like a five, yeah. it's not the end of the world if you, again, are in a spot where someone like Sanderson ends up struggling on his offside. You can still be creative about how you deploy them. And, and you look at how many minutes those big three on the left side would eat. It's like they still found a way for it to work. Yeah. Well, spinning this to Arizona's perspective, obviously underwhelmed by the return, right? Like, especially for how long this thing dragged out, you're wondering, all right, what's their asking price, what they're going to get? It was reported they were looking for two firsts or two equivalents. Now, as we mentioned, not all firsts are created equal. They get one that very realistically could be somewhere in the 8 to 12 or 13 range this season. And in this draft, that gives you a good chance, at least, of getting a very valuable prospect, right? And that's something that most contenders just couldn't offer them because a pick in the 25 to 30 range is not going to net you that type of upside. I'm really curious how much of a roadblock the financial element was for Bill Armstrong because clearly they weren't going to take back significant future money. But if it was just money for the rest of this year, I find it hard to believe that if a contender or a a team like the Kings, let's say, had just been so infatuated with Chikrin the way I am as a player, right? They're like, you know what? We need to add this guy. He's going to help us this year, but also for years to come. We'll just pay a hundred and. 25 cents on a dollar we'll get we'll add an extra pick down the road we'll add an extra first we'll add an extra prospect to kind of force your hand here if bill armstrong and the cody's wouldn't have been like all right well this isn't what we ultimately want to do but it's just too good of a package to pass up and i feel like i know it was reported that the kings offered i think what bjornfoot and two firsts or whatever for him and and that didn't work out so maybe this goes against what i'm saying but i wonder if the market just wasn't there for a team valuing chikrin that way for whatever reason, right? Like, like the opinions on him seem to vary so much, and it seems like none of these teams viewed him as such a such a game changer that they had to pay that price, and maybe that's why this price reflects that. For sure, we saw it with how lukewarm Edmonton was uh, about him, and it worked out in the end because they still got Ekholm, and yep. clearly with the financial obstacles, it wouldn't have been possible. But right from the get-go, that was one of the first sort of logical destinations you thought of when the rumors even started surfacing last season and you could tell based off the reporting out of the Edmonton media which is tied closely to management yeah that they just weren't too fond of the player that they were doing kind of their due diligence but like you said they didn't really view him as a needle mover which you can understand some of the trepidation around him considering the injury concerns I think that's 100% valid valid and I think that's part of why even though I like the bet for the centers, like we mentioned earlier, there is definite sort of risk involved here. I I also think spinning off of this and speaking more to game theory and, and what mm-hmm. we saw at the deadline, it's been fascinating that we didn't see any truly elite prospects. No, I think Shakir Mukmadulin was like the only, and your opinion on him can, may vary, but the only guy that's like, at least he was a relatively high former first-round pick that it still hasn't played in the NHL yet, right? Like, yeah. he's really the only guy I can think of that was 
that would be considered as like a top 50-ish prospect around the league. And that's that's pretty stunning. Like we did see teams really moving draft picks, especially futures. And that probably speaks to the fact that a lot of these smart teams have realized that if you're in a contending window now, a 2025, 2026 first or second doesn't mean anything to you. So why not just try to improve your team now? But you're right. That's we saw clear demarcation in terms of how teams are valuing prospects first picks. Especially because the difference there is players like Chicken and Meyer had uh, control beyond the season, right? Like, we're not talking about... They're not pure rentals. They're not yeah. pure rentals, right? Where when Vancouver was shopping the market on Bo Horvat, for example, like, the best prospect you get is Aturatu, for example. Like, that's, you know, that makes sense, right? You only get him for a year. How much can you real- realistically do? And, of course, the Islanders signed him for, for an extension after that. But for all intents and purposes, he was basically dealt as rental. You would have thought with a player like Timo Meyer, for example, that, and I don't mean to sort of sidetrack this conversation, but whether it was a Meyer or a Chikrin, I thought that you would have had a higher caliber prospect potentially uh, involved where the Devils, you know, avoided giving up uh, an Alexander Holtz. That I never really thought Nemich was going to get moved no, anyway, no, but you, you didn't move him. You didn't have to move a Dawson Mercer. You didn't have to move a Seamus Casey. Uh, essentially only giving up uh, Mac Boudoulin, which is a position on the blue line where with Luke Hughes coming, the Devils are already loaded. Uh, I was a little bit surprised that some of these players with control beyond the season, especially considering their age, didn't net more, you know, really, really high-end premium sort of um, prospects, which which I think is also an understanding of, I think teams realize that we need these ELC guys, right? Like looking at the type of role that Bowen Byron played for the Avs in the playoffs, when you can when you can have a player that you know you have such a long runway of this guy's going to provide so so much more value relative to what he's going to make i think teams understand that especially and again it even goes back to when there were all those rumors around with the Canucks and JT Miller and were the Canucks shopping him part of the reason i think that they refused pulling the trigger on it was because the Canucks were insistent on getting a, the sort of piece that could help, like, step into the prospect that could step into the lineup and help right away. Like, a Braden Schneider from the Rangers was the rumored player that both sides were kind of haggling over. The Rangers were like, he's going to help us now, or we don't want to move him. Yeah. And the Canucks were like, we need him. And then eventually, you saw a player who, at that time, too, like, this is before him tailing off a bit this season, was in the midst of a 99 point campaign, was still playing center ice well, had a year of control beyond. Um, last season at an affordable 5.25 million dollar cap hit, and the, you know the Canucks just didn't get it. And I think it's an interesting overall market trend where even for players with control beyond one season, uh, contenders are saying we're we're going to keep our our top prospects. Who'd rather trade you uh, future first round picks? And that makes sense because those players are more likely to expeditiously help you, right? Like you don't have to wait for two three years while they're still playing major junior, while they're still kind of learning the ropes uh, with pro hockey at the AHL level, they've already probably gotten at least some of those reps out of, out, of the, out of the way, even if they're not playing for your main club right now. So that makes sense. Okay, one quick thing here on the Coyotes. It's an, all, all these conversations do ultimately tie back to JT Miller, though. Like, we're going to talk about the Penguins <laughs> later. Trust me. Like, all of it does. It's 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 like that always uh, sunny in Philadelphia meme, like, with, like, uh, we've got the board here, and then I've got, like, pins all over the place and, and string and trying to connect yeah. everything. Like, it does ultimately always tie back to JT Miller. But <laughs> on a bit of an unrelated note for the Coyotes, so on the one hand, they have 12 picks this year, 14 picks in 2024, 11 picks in 2025. They have 13 picks in the top two rounds in those three drafts. 
they did a wonderful job in terms of over the past however many or past year, two, whatever, in accumulating all these picks. And so that's something that when we talk about a team like the Canucks, we're like, oh, we wish they were doing that. So that makes sense. On the other hand, though, the way that this Chikrin thing developed and all the stories you're hearing coming out of it and sort of how financially motivated everything really is, can't I can't help but be alarmed, right? Like oh, yeah. What I've got them for is they have $57.2 million in cap commitments for next season. Now, if we assume that the floor is going to be around whatever, 61-ish or so the way it was this year, maybe a little bit more, they're almost there. Like, they can take on another contract or two, and, and they'll get there. 22, $22 million of that is on players that will not play games for them. And most of that is guys who are insured, right? Like, they just yeah. took on Jacob Borch's contract. It's showing up as $7 million or whatever. They're going to pay a couple like hundred thousand. Yeah, no, there's, like, not even that. Like, yeah. it's it's... Similar to what Shea Weber, everything, like, they're not going to be actually, money's not going to be coming out of their pocket for it. And it's, they don't operate as an NHL organization. Like, we have to be honest, right? Like, they yeah. operate as a shell company. And I want to distinguish that, like, this isn't a knock against Bill Armstrong. This isn't a knock against the Coyotes. This isn't a knock against, like, their fans or anything, right? This is, I think this is, like, an NHL problem that this is happening because you cannot look at this and be like, this is good that one of our 32 franchises is basically making every decision based on how we can pay the least amount of money possible to be cap compliant. Oh, it's embarrassing, right? It's one thing I would never, ever complain if they were taking on bad contracts for future assets, right? If you're collecting all these first and second round picks, you're taking on other teams' problems, those are players that, you know, even if it's in a really limited capacity, will will suit up for you and, and play some games. But this is like you're just stashing and you're just trying they're to get away from they're paying play, cash. They're, they're placeholder cap hits. And they're never – I don't care how many draft picks they have, right? And I say this is someone who I, – I, we always preach the choir about assets and, and all this kind of stuff for, uh, for rebuilding teams. I don't care how many draft picks they have unless their financial incentives change, unless they show that they're actually willing to spend. They're never going to go anywhere. I'm sorry. Well, they have right now, they have $37 million by my count in like actual salary expenditure they're going to be paying out next year. And yeah, you just, you can't compare that to most of what it takes to be a competitive, potentially Stanley Cup winning organization in the NHL in 2023. Like it's, it's an entirely different playing field, right? Like they're playing with both hands tied behind their backs, basically. And I bring this up because a guy that didn't get moved at this deadline, Nick Schmaltz, was a very interesting candidate for me because... He has a $5.85 million cap hit for the next three seasons. His salary in those years is 7.5, 8.45, and 8.5. And I bring that up to say, I wish I could take every single dollar to my name that I owed and bet on him not being on their team on opening night next year. <laughs> because yeah. there is just no, like, it's, it's, it's a big commitment in terms of uh, it's a player with three-year term that is approaching their late 20s, but he's been pretty productive. And I, and I fully imagine that, acknowledging that math like he's going to be on a different team that is going to be willing to sh- to shell out and pay for that salary because that type of growth is just not something they're in the business of handling for sure i i wondered if a team like carolina that had cap space had a hole probably at, at the second line center position i wondered if they were gonna sort of check in on um on on schmaltz well, let's do let's let's do carolina now yeah let's do it so what are your what are your thoughts on on, on their it's interesting because I think Carolina is showing that they have a different philosophy 
in terms of how they view winning the Stanley Cup, right? I think for starters, it it sucks that they lost their own Timo Meyer. Yeah. That's disappointing. Where yeah, I it think it seems like they were really like in on it. Although it is, it's strange to me that Alexander Nikishin was like such a deal breaker. They were like, we just simply cannot cross this bridge. This is a bridge too far for us. If they're serious about competing for a Stanley Cup, I think that speaks exactly to their philosophy. Where I think the Hurricanes look at a team like the Washington Capitals, right? how many years they were consistently among sort of, say, the top six or seven teams in the league. Never, you know, not necessarily the best team in the league year in and year out, but sort of in that range where you'd look at them and go, that's a legit contender. They're not the favorites, but they're a legit contender. The idea that to actually win a Stanley Cup, you just want to, like, I think from their perspective, since there weren't any players with term that made a lot of sense, I think they went rather than paying expensive prices in a juggernaut Eastern Conference where only one team can win, we'd rather keep our prospects, our picks, and position ourselves to where we have a really good pipeline. Let's just be good for as long as possible, be within that you know top seven or eight teams, and eventually it'll be our year, yeah. which we'll see if it works out. I mean... I think generally they are right in the sense that teams sometimes can be too aggressive in smaller windows and and bet the farm. But on the other hand, I really think that with Patrick out, they needed another sort of high-end scorer, uh, especially because a lack of elite goal scoring has held them back a lot, you know, a couple times in the playoffs before. Uh, Also because we saw Colorado as a sort of foil where they looked at the timeline of the McKinnon contract, right, where they only had him at they had him at six point three, and, and look what a bargain this is, and some of their other contracts with Taves and all the other ones that I mentioned earlier, and they said well, this is a unique year or two where, okay, let's be aggressive and and not that they you know bet the farm necessarily, but they were aggressive, right, and they went out and it worked for them. They won a Stanley Cup. Uh, maybe the difference is maybe the difference is that they look at how strong the East is and they think that. Well, Colorado was in a position last year to where they could look at their team and be like, if we add, we're head and shoulders above everybody else, which even if Carolina added a team of Meyer, they'd be right there. But, you know, Boston is still a really, you know, tough threat and the Rangers are still great. So I'm torn on this. I, I, I've gone in a lot of directions. I think that's a, that's a philosophy, philosophy is, is what I've explained. And I, I'm not sure how I feel about it. Well, they will be analytical with every one of their decisions to their to their final breath, and this was no different, right? And, and and it kind of speaks to what you're saying of, like, if we hang around for long enough, we're one of the top five or six teams that has a realistic path towards winning the Cup. One year, we'll be lucky. A team that would have otherwise given us problems with an elite goalie might fall out, clear the path for us. Things will go our way, and we'll raise the, we'll raise the trophy, and we'll be deemed correct, and that certainly might happen, right? Like, they have a really good team. They do a ton of things incredibly well. I'm with you. I kind of wish that they were a bit more aggressive or um, not not desperate, but like a bit more like let's we have a really good team right now. We're on pace for like 120 something points. Let's consolidate some of this prospect and the draft draft pick capital that we have and really go for it because you look and they're just so different than pretty much every other contender in that they didn't really touch their prospect pool, right? Like they traded Patrick Pistola for 
Jesse Pugliarvi's contract, and he wasn't on our EP ringside guide at the start of the year. He wasn't even one of their top 15 prospects. They might not even have signed him this summer. Um, and they traded 20, 26 third for Shane Gossesburg. Like, they went untouched for their firsts. They've got their seconds. And on the one hand, I credit them because they were able to basically absorb both those players and pay nothing for them because unlike most contenders, they have so much cap flexibility because they're so diligent about every move they make that they were able to just absorb, like... Arizona didn't have to retain 50% of Goss's Bears contract, so they were able to only ask for a future third in 2026, and Carolina was one of the only contenders that was even in a financial position to do something like that, right? So I don't want to be, like, critiquing them because I do think in isolation all of these moves make sense. Like, I think Goss's Bear will help their power play, which I believe is 23rd ranked. Pugliarvi, with the finish connection, it makes a ton of sense that they're going to appreciate what he does well and not worry about the weaknesses, play him with, like, Jordan Stahl on a third third checking line and just eviscerate you on the forecheck with their reach and their puck pursuit. And so they're going to get utility out of these players, but it's not the one big move like Amaya where you go, all right, this team is really going for it this year. The other interesting thing is, and this is why it's difficult, right? It's I don't think this was easy to be in a team like Carolina's position because you could you, you can see the argument for both sides when I look at their sort of um, timeline and, and their window where with this season and next, they've got some unique contracts, right? Where at the end of next season, Sebastian Ajo at a bargain less than eight and a half um, expires as a, as a pending UFA. Um, they've got on the back end, especially with um, with Pesci at, at the end of next season, um, around right around four million expires with and and I think Shea fits that uh, fits that timeline as well. And, and of course, that Shea Pesci pairing has been. Excellent. So on the one hand, you could kind of argue that, okay, should we look to take advantage of this two-year window and really look to be aggressive? But then on the other hand, you could say, well, our MO has typically been that we don't like paying, you know, like, of course you keep a guy like Sebastian Ajo, but yeah. when it comes to maybe like a Pesci or a Shea, we don't like to sign guys in their late 20s to their big UFA contracts. When you look at what they did with Trocheck and Niederreiter and uh, all those sorts of guys letting them walk. If those guys are going to walk, then we need to keep an, an Alexander Nikishin intact because we need those guys to sort of be able to step in and, and, and have them play meaningful roles. So that's where you're kind of caught in the middle. And, you know, it's so unfortunate that I really wish Travis Konechny was in the market, right? Yeah. Like for a team like Philadelphia, they're not going anywhere anytime soon. A player like Konechny would have been excellent for the Canes in terms of he's got term, he's got a reasonable cap hit, and, and similar to Meyer, it would have been another one of those targets where it's like it would have been worth paying an expensive price for. But I think once Meyer left, and this is what I was wondering when the, when the discussions happened, I was like, I don't know who plan B is. There's not an obvious plan yeah. B. Yeah. Well, I think it's going to be someone that's like underpaid and maybe underappreciated that has still term left, right? Like it's yeah. not going to be a player that they're going to have to pay financially at a premium on the open market. Uh, Harm, let's take our final break here. And then when we come back, we'll finish this conversation up. You're listening to the Hockey PDO cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Harm and Dial. Harm, we're going to have to go into hurry-up mode here because we've talked about like five teams so far. And I really thought this two-hour window for us, the extended version of the PDO guest, was going to give us the opportunity to cover everything. And in classic fashion, we haven't. So 
speed round. Give me a team that you want to talk about. Toronto. Yep. Really interesting to see just how active they were, the number of trades that they made, significantly reshaping their team both up front and on the back end. For, starter, for starters, and a lot of people were hesitant about trading for Ryan O'Reilly and they and you know they had some flashbacks to Nick Felino, but to me I didn't I, I didn't like that comparison at all where I understood the premise that okay O'Reilly's been injured down year did you catch him a year too late but Felino in comparison to um to O'Reilly like they're not even comparable like no. O'Reilly is a player that heading into this season had been nominated for the Selkie Trophy or at least sort of in, sorry in the top 5 in four consecutive seasons, the number of 50, like, Felino's top 55 points once in his career, and that was six years before the Leafs acquired him. O'Reilly did that, like, nine times no, in I mean, his they're career. entirely different. Like, so players. that's why, for me, I love the O'Reilly addition right off, uh, right off the bat. It gives him flexibility in terms of whether you want to load him into the top six, which which they've experimented with, or have him centering his third line, and you can definitely have that debate, but it gives him someone who's a clutch playoff performer just as recently as last year, the seven goals in, in 12 games. What he did to the Canucks in the uh, when they played them in that series, oh, and the Blues man. were badly outclassed in He that almost single-handedly yeah. clawed them back into that series. Superhuman effort, yeah. So that's, that's big, especially in, like, in previous big game moments, we've seen some of their stars, you know, sometimes be quiet, right? The Leafs, so to have another weapon that can come through and, and add the sort of gritty defensive side of it to the physicality, the bite, which they've also added on the back end, I, I liked a lot of what the Leafs did. Well, I think a lot of this has been framed as, like, they want to get tougher. They want to they wanna become more playoff uh, ready or have a more of a kind of a playoff hockey element to their team, right? And there's certainly part of that. I think an, another issue... Like Kyle Dubas clearly identified here with the team was, all right, when push comes to shove in big moments, when we're playing in a game seven against the Tampa Bay, which they might be staring down the barrel of again this season, that team, if they get in a position where they're up or it's a close game, they can load up defensively. They can basically just put every single one of their defenders either again across the blue line when we're trying to enter the zone with possession or load up in front of their own net and just basically dare us to beat them from the outside and we have no way of kind of penetrating that defensive force field, right? Yeah. And so he's like, I think O'Reilly helps them a lot in in the sense of different ways to score from in tight, Yeah. which is, I think Kyle's actually made that point in some of his interviews when talking about the acquisitions. And I think that makes sense because if you look at the five times, the most recent five times they've been eliminated, they scored one goal against Tampa Bay last year, one goal against Montreal the year before, got shut out by Columbus in the Unis Corpusalo season, I think he scored one goal against the Boston Bruins. Oh, sorry, that's the past four elimination games. But the point stands of in these big moments, that's actually what's been their undoing. It hasn't been this idea that they're not good enough defensively or that they can't get it done uh, in terms of uh, playing too risky of a style of hockey. They need to find ways to score goals in those moments. And so that's what I'm interested in about here. For sure. We also saw them renovate the fourth line in yep. terms of bringing, bringing in Noel, Noel Chari and... I think Sam Lafferty, yeah. Sam Lafferty I, I like that fit a lot better. And for last season as well, that was a little bit of a, a little bit of a concern. Was I think could Toronto win some of those secondary matchups? And I think they're much better positioned to do that. Also on the back end, Rasmus Sandin's had a great season in in a very sort of sheltered and limited role. I think clearly though, I still had some concerns about could he handle 
a really heavy forecheck? And, and could he get it done in crunch time? Is he ready for that, right? He's still really, really young. And by the, by the sounds of it, seem malcontent. So be able to trade away all these assets and then be able to bring one back at a first rounder. Yeah. I thought that was impressive as well and to kind of reshape the blue line with a player like Jake McCabe to have the especially retained yeah two million for two more seasons after this one to have the the cost certainty beyond the season have the flexibility of he can play both sides yeah Luke Shen into the equation as another sort of depth defenseman they've got so many different options for how they can configure the blue line now I mean you're looking at a scenario where you have someone like Connor Timmins who is playing pretty reliable hockey he, he's someone who could be on the outside looking in in terms of their top six, or Luke Shen could be on the on the outside looking in. And so that means if you run into injuries or if a certain pair is being exposed, you've got options for different, you know, plug and play modes. And you're not worried about can this, you know, like Rasmus and can he survive this workload? If something's not working, they can quickly shift. Well, here's the thing. We saw this series against Tampa Bay last year, and it's like it's it's been a lock that they're going to play them again in a rematch this season, right? And especially this year with even Ryan McDonough now not being there, you look at the shape of that blue line for the Lightning, and the way to beat them is to just absolutely pulverize them on the forecheck. Yeah. Because aside from Victor Hedman, and even he is prone to turnovers when you pressure him, right? He's a big guy. He doesn't want the puck in his skates and being kind of harassed by smaller players in particular. Like He wants to be in, a, in an advantageous position, right, with space. If you look at the composition of the depth chart of the blue line for the Lightning, you can really kind of pick them apart with speed, with an aggressive forecheck. And so I think that's where guys like Achari and Lafferty really fit in because they can actually go out there and, sure, throw the body and be physical and all that good stuff that people love in the playoffs, but also functionally force them into turnovers, create scoring chances when the Lightning can't get set defensively in those settings, right? So I think that's a key part of this. I guess my question, though, is I spent the past couple of days waiting for one more trade from the Leafs. I know they they made a flurry of them on that Tuesday or whatever. They certainly weren't lacking in terms of activity, like they made their moves. But right now, they're perfectly positioned to activate Matt Murray, call up Matthew Nyes basically after his NCAA season is over, and that's all the room they have for. I was wondering whether they were going to use a guy like Alex Kerfoot, who has 3.5 left, and they clearly don't trust, and he's on the outs, and he's expiring, and package him with that Bruins 2023 first, which they acquired, in the Sandine trade, which doesn't really make sense as an asset for them if they're going to go this haul in. I was wondering whether they were going to do that and package those things or maybe even a Justin Hall because they have so many blue liners now to go out and take one more big swing at a top six winger in particular who can score in different ways and give them another added element of that, right? And they, it, I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. Like a Bertuzzi? Was, yeah, potentially. And maybe that's why the Bruins went ahead and, and made that move themselves to, to block the Leafs from doing so. But I really thought that was like the last move on the chessboard and instead now you're right it's not ever a bad thing to have nine nhl caliber defensemen but it's also not an ideal usage of resources to have three of them watching from the press box right and so for me i would have liked to see them potentially use some of those to get something that i still think they need which is a bit more scoring punch now i think they're hoping that matthew nice is going to be that for them when he comes up and and we'll see it's a lot to ask for someone who's never played in the league before especially on the fly like that but that's kind of the calculus, I think, that they approach this with, and that's why they made And maybe they just felt that after Bertuzzi went off the board, there wasn't really that type of player that was worth pushing the rest of their chips in. Or even with even with the possibility of Bertuzzi, who I would have loved as a stylistic fit, they've already given up so many assets. Could you afford to give up another one for 
uh, a rental in a year where the East is so strong and you know you're going to have to get through Tampa again. Uh, I can understand why they sort of looked at it and went, you know, it's, not, it's not an easy sort of maneuver to find that right target that, that makes sense. I don't know. Like, they have two more playoff runs with Matthews and Elander before their UFAs. They have another one after that well, with Wander and Tavares. Kyle Dubas doesn't have a contract after this season now. That shouldn't factor in the decision-making yeah. because he's done a good enough job where he should be getting that extension regardless. And maybe part of it was like, you know, he's in a, no, in a no-win situation in the sense that if he does move the rest of these assets, people are going to be like, oh, what a cowardly move, for, like getting rid of stripping everything bare on his way out, right? And and who knows? The deal maybe just wasn't there. But that's something that I would have would have liked. Maybe even a guy like I know he's wouldn't necessarily – he's not like a finisher – but how good would a guy like Connor Garland, for example, mm-hmm. look on this team in that role as another sort of like just tenacious puck retriever and high motor guy who still has skill to his game? And I'm sure the Canucks would have loved uh, the Bruins 2023 first and, and Kerfoot's contract and whatever else it took to make that work, right? And so who knows? I, that was a, a trade that I had seen kind of bandied about as an idea, and I really liked it, and it never came to fruition. But um, all right, so we've done the Leafs. Do you want to quickly... Bring a full circle. Talking about JT Miller a lot on this podcast. Do I talk a bit about the Penguins? Because I think yeah. how they approach this compared to what a team they're always going to be linked to, especially while Crosby and Ovechkin are still in the league, and the Capitals did, where the Capitals were behind them in the standings, but they eventually realized it wasn't going to be their year, and they basically moved every single UFA they had, except for Nick Jensen, for futures, or in the case of the Orlov trade, getting a first and then flipping it with Gustafson to get Rasmus Sandin from the Leafs. The Penguins instead went and, as the oldest team in the league, added a 31-year-old, a 32-year-old, and a 35-year-old to the roster. Yeah, so the one move I liked from today was finding a way to get off of Brock McGinn's contract, yeah. which had two years and after this And I actually like Kulikov. I know his defensive numbers yeah. are bad, but he's like he's playing on one of the worst teams ever. Yeah, so that was, that was a good trade. But beyond that, and I'm also shocked someone took, took, Cap, took uh, Kapanen off, uh, off waivers. Yep. The fact that the Penguins were able to find a takeover Kapanen and McGinn open up all that cap flexibility and they weren't able to make a bigger sort of splash that made that made more sense I think is extremely extremely disappointing now right off the bat Hextall would not have had the leeway in terms of his own job security to kind of do what the Capitals did I'm sure if the Penguins missed or had an early you know first round exit that his job would have been in trouble so I can understand why they were in a buying position but you look at Granlund He's taking a big step back yep. this season. He's got two years left after this one, I believe, at fi- at a $5 million cap hit. I just don't think they're catching Granlund at the right time. You've really got to hope that he bounces back to the level that he played at last season. And, and that third line has been just such a disaster. You're hoping that he can come in and stabilize that, but I, I don't know. I mean, here's the thing for me. I... I cannot rationalize. I understand that regardless of what they did, regardless of who they added, they'd have an uphill climb as a wildcard team playing yeah. against potentially the Bruins or the Hurricanes or the Devils or whatever in round one. But once you bring back Malkin and Latang this summer and you have Crosby and Malkin and Crosby are playing at such a high level at a below market value price for you, under $15 million combined, neither guys missed a single game yet this season, this season due to injury. Once you make that decision as an organization, you have to have a one-track mind, right? Like, Oh, yeah. Every move revolves around, does this help us maximize the remaining years these guys have left? And for them to keep a pick that's going to be, you know, in the mid, in the 15 to 20 range this summer, it's going to be an 18-year-old that's probably going to take 
four years, three, four years generously to make any sort of impact for them is just unconscionable to me. Like, I just don't understand how you can look in the mirror and look at the way those guys are playing, the commitment you've made, and be like, this is what we needed to do. This could be the last possible year where they have any real shot of of, of contending for a cup, even if it was an outside sort of shot, especially because, like, Malkin's been healthy. Yeah. Like, how often does that happen? And so playing they, really oh, well. He's playing really well. They had to, in my opinion, f- like, find a way to make a more substantial upgrade. They didn't do nearly enough in, in adding another sort of questionable contract in the Grandland one beyond this season. Uh, it's 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 a really tough look for on Hextall. I mean, one of their strengths previously was their bottom six because they like Mike Sullivan had the superpower of anyone you plug and play there, I'm going to get the most out of them. They just need to forecheck aggressively, be solid defensively, have a high motor, and I'm going to make it work with them, even if they just came up from the AHL. And then you look at all the moves they made recently, and they're just completely opposite from that, right? It almost feels like there's this growing gulf between Hextall and Burke in the management group and Mike Sullivan in terms of the players he likes. And I wonder what the communication is like between those two or what's going on there because the relationship clearly seems to be kind of not where you want it to be in terms of communication between those two. So I don't know. I really did not like what the Penguins are doing. They're probably going to make the playoffs here. I just think in terms of maximizing these remaining years, they did not do a good enough job. Let me give you a quick pitch on why I love the Minnesota Wilds trade deadline. All right, I'm all, all ears. All right, so... They entered with a unique situation financially where they had a ton of flexibility this year and absolutely zero ability to add any money beyond the season. And so what they did is they played the third-party broker in the O'Reilly trade. They played the third-party broker in the Orlov trade. They add a fourth and fifth, I believe, in those two deals, right? They go spin around and trade those for potential scoring help in Gustav Nyquist and Marcus Johansson, right? They get off of Jordan Greenway's contract, which I believe has two more years left at $3 million, which is valuable for the cap space for them moving forward. They get a second out of that. They, in the last minute, come out of nowhere to steal John Klingberg for a future fourth, which really speaks to how far his market value has dropped. And they add Oscar Sunquist, whatever, as well. But basically, they have... They turned a third, two-fourths, and a fifth into a second, a fourth, and two-fifths and they improve their current roster and also shed money for next season. And so in the grand scheme of things, it's not like, oh, I think all of a sudden Minnesota's a contender because they're still basically a one-line team. Like when Caprizov's out there, they're really good. When he's not, I don't know how they're going to score goals. But I do like the fact that they were very creative in all these different moves that actually resulted in a net positive for them moving forward. I'm shocked that they got as much as they did for Jordan Greenway considering the year that he's had. I mean, yeah. he's he has, what, two goals and seven points this season? And I know he's been more productive in years past, but in a flat cap world where it's typically been hard to move salary to not only get off of that without having to take any money back. Well, he's huge which helps that differentiates yeah. him from like Connor Garland, right? We know how teams operate. I and know. I actually kind of do, like he had, he has had good defensive impacts, right? Especially yeah. playing on that line. I'm not sure how much of that is him, how much of his environment. I clearly thought he was the third piece on that line. Yes, but I think it's a, it's a stylistic fit in terms of he helps a little bit for what the Sabres need. And yeah. I like the idea that the Sabres are accumulating this roster of like the biggest people in the league. They can also still skate too. Like it's not like yeah. six foot six stiffs, like all these guys can move. And I like the idea that he sort of fits this like vision of what they want. Yeah, that's fair. Especially Sorry, if you can help I'm their, not, I'm not especially sure if, pitch you on Greenway. But. Especially if you can help their penalty kill, yeah. right? The Sabres is, but 
for anyway, like for the Wild to get off of that contract, I thought it was the biggest win, especially considering the value that they netted in that trade. Well, they had, listen, Nyquist, Johansson, uh, Klingberg, they need offense anywhere they can get it because the last 14 games, and you saw this, they played the Canucks yeah. yesterday, they scored two goals, they win 2-1, Kaprizov scores both goals. Last 14 games, they've scored 25 goals as a team. Kaprizov's been on the ice for 20 of them. They scored five goals without him in 14 games. Oh, my God. And they've won a bunch of them because they're back to being really good defensively, but clearly they need help. I'm curious to see what Klingberg's addition means for Kalen Addison because he plays, like, I think, like, 25% of his all, of all the minutes he plays are on power play one. Scratched a bunch recently. Probably, yeah. So that's not ideal, but... Um, I still don't think that they're... It's tough because with the buyout, it just complicates yeah. so much of their cap situation. Uh, it really is too bad because they've got this great prospect pipeline. They've got Kaprizov where it's like you want to maximize it now. And they just, like, sure, I don't mind the players that they picked up, but they still don't have enough of that punch. It's, it's crazy how much they've dropped off in terms of, well, were they the number one or number two or something, five and five scoring team last they're year? Definitely and like top three to five, and now they're bottom three. Right? Now they're bottom three. So I still, it's it's too bad in a wide open West where they haven't, you know, done enough, I think. But on the other hand, the field is also wide open that, I mean, who knows, right? Are you surprised that I had a note here about, like, the Flyers kept James Van Rieseck for some reason as an impending UFA when I, I, I imagine a bunch of teams would have desperately used his skill set. One of them for me was the Kraken who had the 24th-ranked power play, and they were sort of completely silent today. They didn't make any moves around this deadline. Do you think that's, like, a vote of confidence in their team that they like their depth and they think they're good or do you view it as like maybe we shouldn't be pushing a lot of futures in here because we're probably not going to make that much noise this year it's a good question i hadn't necessarily thought about it from seattle's perspective it was really strange seeing them pop up as a team that was reportedly in on or kicking the tires on horvat and that had me wondering how aggressive they'd be but they've slid a little bit recently not a lot down to closer to a wild card position I don't know. I, I, I think I, I don't mind them being patient at all. Yeah. If anything, I was worried that they might prematurely try to accelerate and kind of do the Vegas thing where it's like, let's just go after any splashy name we can. With with someone like Van Riemsdyk, yeah, I mean, I would have... They probably could have gotten him. They probably could have gotten him, but I also think that it's tough, right? They've got all these forwards that are like they're st- they're stocked with really useful forwards that provide all these different things like a guy like Daniel Sprong and yep. and in his limited minutes provides so much value that I wonder if they looked at Van Riemsdyk's 5 5 value and went is it enough of an upgrade in terms of a power play as a, as a pure net front guy like is he going to lift our power play enough for him, for us to justify him being in in our lineup on an everyday basis and giving up a potential pick yeah, yeah, you're probably right. I just think maybe from the Flyers' perspective, I can't believe. Oh yeah, it was funny him. hearing Bruce Boudreau be like, "I would have traded him for an eighth round pick if I could." <laughs> yeah, they have one pick at this moment in the top like 45 or 50. They didn't use any of their salary retention spots. I have no idea what they were doing. Although they they were pretty limited in terms of resources to begin with. Harm, we got to get out of here. This was a blast. Thanks for coming on. Quickly, let the listeners know where they can check you out. Yeah. You guys can uh, find my work at uh, at The Athletic, and uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, Harmon Dial, too. All right, this was a blast, man. Uh, sorry to the listeners uh, of, you know, whose allegiances are with teams that we didn't cover. We, I thought for two hours we'd be able to 
to, to get to everything, but we just clearly didn't budget enough because we spent so much time talking about JT Miller. But uh, there's going to be plenty of time in the coming days and weeks to get into all this stuff, so looking forward to doing that here. Now I'm going to go have a nice cold beer, take a nap, get some rest because this has been one crazy week, the craziest trade deadline week I can remember. In Lucky. I have like two more this. podcasts and an article to write. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, Godspeed, man. Um, thank you to the listeners for sticking around with us this entire week. Um, we will be back on Monday with plenty more. So until then, thank you for listening to the Hockey PDO cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network.